Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Peck. The Wyoming Legislature will have a lot less money to spend on its next budget, but some hope they don't just cut. I think that we can go on with a reasonable budget, similar to the budget that we had last time. We'll visit the Northern Red Desert, where two Laramie artists have created an open-air studio near an energy field. We were looking for habitat, we found habitat, and now we've created habitat, including horseshoe pits. We'll learn about the surprising second act of the TV antenna. Initially, my goal was to sell about 35 antennas a month. I think last month we shipped about a little over 70,000 antennas. And we'll hear about efforts to combat truancy on the Wind River Reservation. Join us for those stories and more on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. The Consensus Revenue Estimating Group, or CRAIG, will release its much-anticipated revenue forecast on Tuesday. Wyoming's revenues are expected to drop 500 to $600 million, which means legislators will have a lot less money to spend compared to the last budget. This comes at a time when the governor has already asked state agencies to find ways to trim $200 million from the existing budget. The culprit is falling energy prices, specifically from oil and gas. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck says that lawmakers know that the Craig Report will only confirm that they need to make some changes in the way they spend money. In some ways, you could say lawmakers have been waiting for this day. Ever since natural gas prices started dipping in the last decade, lawmakers have been very careful with how they've spent money and started saving for the future. Speaker of the House Kermit Brown says the spending was strategic. And we've used the majority of that money building one-time projects and not trying to increase recurring expenses. And so we have a lot of nice new things that we've bought and we've built. We've tried not to build the state payroll or the state government any more than we had to in anticipation of this day. Oil and gas prices are roughly half of what they were projected to be a year ago, and Brown has been told low prices may last for the next three years. Even after that, they won't return to the levels of the last decade. Last month, Governor Matt Mead indicated that budget reductions are on the way. We're going to have to tighten our belts and tighten our belts a lot. I don't think there's any reason for cuts. I really don't. That's Senate Minority Leader Chris Rothfuss. I think that we can go on with a reasonable budget similar to the budget that we had last time. The reason is simple. Rothfuss says the Legislative Reserve Account, which is also called a rainy day fund, has $2 billion, so they can spend some of that. Meanwhile, the state's been earning record investment revenues, and that return could also be used to soften the blow. And one more thing. The legislature has been automatically putting some money into savings. Rothfuss says they could use that money to pay for current needs. He says the fiscal downturn is a real concern, but he adds that Wyoming is prepared to weather the storm and leaders need to take a sensible approach. We don't want to panic. We don't want to wreck the state. We do recognize that we have a lot of funds available to us in savings, and we want to make sure that we're judicious about using those funds uh, and at the same time not just 
senselessly cutting programs. Rothfuss says his biggest concern is that some budget hawks might see this as an opportunity to look to unnecessary austerity measures. While organizations like the Wyoming Liberty Group are calling for cuts in the budget, legislative leaders seem to be leaning towards keeping things mostly flat. But one area appears vulnerable. That's state aid for local government. Two years ago, the legislature provided $175 million and last year added another $8 million. But that money could either go away or get substantially reduced. On a gray, rainy day that seemed to fit her mood, Laramie City Manager Janine Jordan is preparing for the worst. Historically, what we know in Laramie is that when the state cuts their budget, reduces their spending, uh, there is typically a uh, similar reduction in funding to municipal governments. And so, in the last few days, Jordan took some action. And so we're freezing hiring um, other than essential public safety positions uh, pending the outcome of the, the budget session. Despite efforts to diversify its local economy, Albany County and Laramie do not get the tax revenue that other places get because it features a lot of federal lands and its largest employer, the University of Wyoming, is tax-exempt. Jordan says Laramie gets about $160 per person to spend on services, where other comparable-sized communities get thousands. Riverton City Administrator Stephen Weaver says it would be disappointing if the legislature cut local government funding. In the good times, they've been packing away the money, and we really haven't. So I would hope that they would keep us at the same levels because in the good times, we haven't gained any more than, but, but they have. Speaker of the House Kermit Brown says he understands their concern, but there are a lot of needs. Medicaid expansion could put $50 million of federal money into the state budget, but Brown is not convinced that they can count on that money in the long term. And he's also not ready to consider any taxes. It would just be a, a total breach of trust with the people of the state of Wyoming to now say, well, now we have to raise taxes because all the money we saved and all the revenue that's coming from it is inadequate. And we've built all these uh, recurring uh, obligations in state government that you're going to have to pay with more taxes. I can't. Uh, we're a long ways from there. The Consensus Revenue Estimating Group report is released Tuesday. The budget session begins in February. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. This year, Wyoming's junior senator, John Barrasso, took the gavel as chairman of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. Our Washington reporter, Matt Laszlo, caught up with him and others to check up on the new role he's playing in Indian country. If you've ever seen Senator Barrasso speak on a cable news show, or if you happen to catch him on C-SPAN, you've likely heard him railing against so-called Obamacare. But Barrasso's more than a one-trick pony. As chairman of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, he's got one of the largest portfolios in Congress because of all the daunting issues facing Indian country as he'll readily tell you. Issues of health, issues of housing, issues of education, uh, the economy in general where unemployment is very high. Uh, you also see an, an incredible substance abuse. You see high incidence of suicide. And as a doctor, those to me all fit under the umbrella of, of health. The committee is known for its history of being one of the most bipartisan places on Capitol Hill. Still, Barrasso is a staunch conservative, which seems to be working well in his dealings with the nation's tribes. Sovereign nations that have a long and often ugly history in their dealings with U.S. federal officials. The committee working together 
And what we've all found is that the best solutions are ones that don't come from the government. They come from the people right there on the ground. They know what works uh, best, and it's just a way to try to sometimes get the government out of the way. In that vein, the chairmanship is giving Barrasso a new venue to rant and rail against Washington bureaucrats. Take his anger on water issues in Indian country. You know, the, the government, almost 100 years ago, started many irrigation projects on reservations all around the country. Then the Depression hit. They never got completed. The, the, the build-up maintenance backlog is huge. The money isn't there uh, to do it. And yet, uh, you know, Washington dropped the ball, and that was 100 years ago. So we're still trying to deal with uh, Washington getting too involved. Brasso is proud that in this gridlock Congress, his committee has been active, passing 20 bipartisan bills thus far. One bill that's passed out of the committee would help with housing needs in Indian country, while another that passed the full Senate addressed the spike in suicides in elementary and secondary schools in Indian country. Seven have gone through the, through the Senate, and then a lot of it has to do with uh, giving, giving our uh, Native American community opportunities to make the decisions for themselves. Barrasso is garnering praise thus far. Former chairman of the committee, John McCain of Arizona, says Barrasso is a great fit as chairman. I think he's doing a superb job. I really do. I think he's doing a great job. He's one of the most active chairmen we've ever had, and uh, frankly, he's addressing some of the fundamental issues that affect Indian country, like alcohol and other problems, too. It's not just Republicans. Montana Senator John Tester is the top Democrat on the committee. He says there's been a lot of continuity between Barrasso's tenure as chairman and when Democrats were in charge. There's, there's a lot of bills he's taken up that we took up that were important issues, so I got, no, I got no complaints. But when it comes to tribal issues, lawmakers matter less than Native Americans themselves. Some tribal leaders and Native activists report being dubious when Barrasso took over the gavel this year. Jacqueline Peta is the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians. Well, actually, I've been very pleasantly um, pleased with you know, his leadership and their strategy about moving forward. Peta says Barrasso hit the ground running on issues ranging from Indian health care to drug use, even though she initially thought he was biting off too much. He made it really clear at the beginning of his term that he had an agenda um, that he wanted to, you know, a priority of issues he wanted to look at. And it was a pretty hefty list. And, you know, through hearing and uh, other work, they've actually pretty, they've really tackled that list. But there's one big problem hanging over Barrasso's head, getting floor time for his committee's priorities. Republican Congressman Tom Cole of Oklahoma is one of two Native Americans currently in Congress. Cole knows how tough it is to make priorities of Indian country important in Washington. Well, it is, uh, you know, and that's a, that's a tough thing because, again, many members don't have significant tribal presence or Native American population. Uh, so uh, there's large portions of the Congress that uh, are not directly concerned in these issues and, frankly, not particularly knowledgeable about them. They are complex and they're deeply rooted in history. Now leaders across Indian country are watching to see if Barrasso can use his perch as a member of the Republican leadership team in the Senate to get his committee's bills quickly considered in a chamber known for being bottled up. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. When we come back, the Crow Indian tribe is teaming up with a Wyoming coal company in efforts to export more coal. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. In south-central Montana, plans are underway to get more coal out of the ground and onto ships headed to Asia. The Crow Tribe of Montana and Cloud Peak Energy of Wyoming are partnering to develop a new coal mine on the reservation and to open up a new export terminal in Washington's Puget Sound. Although coal prices are in decline and a protest movement is growing, the Crow are undeterred. For them, coal equals survival. Amy Martin visited the Crow Reservation and has this report. Lucy Whiteman Runzim lives in a small home outside of Lodgegrass, Montana, with her husband and their four children. The reservation is vast and sparsely populated. From their front door, the only sounds she can hear are the wind blowing through the grass and the occasional car passing on the highway. If the new mine goes in, the rolling hills near her home will get a lot noisier, but she's in full support of the proposal. We need that coal. We depend on it for jobs and then also like our roads, our schools, you know, like this coal revenue, it provides for this community. To give your kid warm clothes in the winter and food in their belly, that's what every parent desires to do. Jason Cummins is the principal at Crow Agency School. When he was a child, his father worked at the Absalica Mine, which opened on the Crow Reservation in the early 1970s. He says many of the families at his school continue to be supported by that mine today. And so the coal mine in our community, that's the opportunity it brings. And it helps for self-sufficiency to be able to determine our own future. These are just two of the many Crow tribal members who are wholeheartedly in favor of the new mine. When it comes to coal, uh, here at Crow, you're not going to have controversy. That's Darren Old Coyote, chairman of the Crow Tribe. Two years ago, he signed an agreement giving Cloud Peak Energy, one of the nation's biggest coal companies, an option to lease 1.4 billion tons of coal on the reservation. He argues the jobs and revenue the agreement will provide are essential to his community. I don't want it to be dependent on the, the U.S. government. We have the resources, we have the manpower, we have the capability of being self-sufficient, and there's no reason why we should be this poor. Alleviating that poverty is the chairman's top priority. Unemployment on the reservation is somewhere between 25 and 50 percent, housing is scarce, and there's often not enough money for basic services and infrastructure. Chairman Old Coyote says the decision to develop coal has to be understood with these facts in mind, and in the context of 200 years of attacks on the language, land, and lives of the Crow. All of that, we survived all of that. You know, whether it be through simulation, warfare, smallpox, all of that we've survived. And we're going to continue moving forward to survive. And, and the only way I know how now is to develop our coal. And what I'm doing is in the best interest of my people. But will those interests be served by coal? To develop the mine, Cloud Peak says international customers are critical, so it needs new export terminals on the West Coast. Those terminals face stiff opposition from Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest, and other communities along the rail lines are sounding the alarm as well. There are also serious questions about the project's economic viability. A new coal mine is pretty risky right now. Mark Haggerty is with Headwaters Economics in Bozeman. Those export markets that this mine is essentially designed to capture have collapsed in the last five years, and there's no guarantee that they're going to come back. Carolyn Pease Lopez represents the Crow Reservation in the Montana legislature. I'm very concerned about the world market, and I'm concerned that we still don't have that um, those ports in place, 
and there's so much hanging in the balance. But even with those doubts, Pease Lopez does not oppose the project. I wouldn't ever try to speak against it because I am representing my leader's wishes and the people's wishes. Cloud Peak has been losing money on export sales since the middle of 2013, but the company says it sees, quote, long-term growing demand, unquote, coming from Vietnam, South Korea, and other countries. Plans for the Gateway Pacific Terminal and an additional terminal on the Columbia River are currently under environmental review by federal and state agencies. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Martin in Montana. Some of the best places in America to see the starry night sky also happen to be the best places to drill for oil. As oil development exploded in recent years, so has the amount of light pollution. Our Inside Energy reporter Emily Guerin has the story. Kent Friesen looks up from a massive telescope. you got to see this. The Andromeda this galaxy is framed in the small hey, hey, viewfinder. You know, you he calls out into the darkness for his wife, Laura. Wow. They're from Denver and are rarely in places as dark as North Dakota's Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which is holding a stargazing festival this fall weekend. I can easily look up and there's the Milky Way. That, that's so easy to see and you, you, you can't see that in, in, in Denver. If you're from a city, the night sky in western North Dakota will blow your mind. The stars are bright and there are so many of them. But Jay Bjerke, an astronomy buff from Moorhead, Minnesota, notices that something's missing. Over there. He points at a butte that's silhouetted by a soft glow. You can't see stars between the horizon and 20 degrees up. That's the oil fields. What you can see is half a dozen natural gas flares blazing just outside the park fence. Park ranger Jeff Zilland knows because he spent many nights this summer driving gravel roads in the dark trying to find the sources of light pollution. Yeah, there's light coming up from the flares, but there's all of these trucking facilities and gas stations and even cities that are just growing. The National Park Service actually measures light pollution with a special camera. They found that between 2010 and 2013, light pollution in the park's north unit increased by 500 percent faster than at any other national park in the country. It's really hard to get in front of something that is moving that fast and, that, and that's that big. Eileen Andes is the chief of interpretation at the park, and she says they've basically been in triage mode since the oil boom began. It's hard to deal with a lot of critical things at the same time when you're short-staffed. Now they're getting around to light pollution. They're talking with developers about lighting, and they've produced a series of educational videos. We need dark places like this now more than ever. But they're not nearly as ambitious as Bill Wren, the light pollution guru at the University of Texas McDonald Observatory. Our goal is nothing short of changing the way the oil and gas industry lights their nighttime activities. The observatory is deep in West Texas. Empty, dark country, necessary for the kind of work that happens here, observing very faint light from very distant stars. And yeah, if the sky gets brighter than the faint source we're trying to see, then it's lost. Wren worries oil and gas development from the nearby Permian Basin could jeopardize the work being done at the observatory. So he's reached out to some of the oil men that work there and found one with a soft spot for West Texas. You know, it's just one of the great assets of that area is you, you just have dark skies. You can see stars from horizon to horizon. Stacy Locke is the CEO of Pioneer Energy Services. 
Locke said he'd never really thought about lighting before. Not at all. But he wanted to help. The fixes were pretty simple. Point lights on drilling rigs and well pads down, not up. Switch to warmer colored bulbs and LEDs. The key, Locke says, is getting the companies that own the well sites on board. They hire all of the service providers so they can mandate, hey, if you want to work for me, your equipment has to be dark sky compliant. Bill Wren says light pollution may be decreasing, but it's probably because there's been a major slowdown in drilling activity in the last year when the price of oil started plummeting. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration looking at energy issues in the West. Up next, we'll have part two of our series on the Red Desert and a surge in TV antennas. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. When you think of Wyoming landscape art, it's probably not of fracking sites or abandoned man camps. But two Laramie artists feel it's time to take a hard look at all of Wyoming's landscapes. For the second part of her series on the Red Desert, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards camped out at a desert studio somewhere north of Wamsutter. Installation artist David Jones and painter Pat Keekut discovered this campsite a few years ago working on a project for the University of Wyoming. They had this, uh, these grants that were offered kind of combining um, biodiversity and art. And so we came up with this idea of exploring the life zones of the Red Desert. They started driving the miles of oil and gas roads north of Rollins. Keycut says that's when they found the oasis. It's funny, we were looking for habitat, we found habitat, and now we've created habitat, including horseshoe pits. <laughs> yeah, including horseshoe pits, exactly. <laughs> Their campsite sits on a cliff overlooking a natural artesian well. Ducks paddle here, hawks wheel above, a herd of desert elk migrate past. And all around, natural gas pumps and tanks sit idle. There's definitely times where you come out here and there's a lot of drilling activity, and then there's times where there's none. And right now, actually, there are, I've noticed, there's at least uh, three new wells going in. Joan says they never know if they'll show up and find a new well in their campsite. But they both find inspiration in the sheer size of such industrial sites. They're pretty similar, actually, in aesthetic with some earthwork sculpture. And I think maybe that's my interest in it, too, is like the scale of, you know, they, they don't look like they're that big from the road. But when you actually walk around on one of those it's sites, gigantic. they're huge. I mean, they're huge holes. Keycut says it's important that artists don't turn a blind eye to such landscapes. He says art has the power to change perceptions. It definitely has the ability to change people's approach to how land is used and what the value might be. But tonight's work isn't about industrial sites. Tonight, both artists are waiting for the moon to rise, but for different reasons. Keycut, the painter, is close to finishing a series of 31 paintings he's doing at the moon's phases. They all are arranged in a grid. They read like a calendar of a moon. Meanwhile, installation artist Jones hopes to film the moon rising through the window of a miniature mobile home he built. Inside the toy-sized trailer is a mini heap of trash bags, a mini heavy metal band poster on the wall, and a mini chair and coffee table. He built the 53-inch trailer after noticing lots of abandoned mobile homes littered around the Red Desert. 
and you always kind of find yourself asking the question of, you know, how did this happen? What's the story? Because you don't know what the story is, your brain thinks the worst possible scenario. <laughs> Inside the 1964 Avion travel trailer the artists used for shelter, Jones gets out a laptop and shows the movie he filmed on location of burning the toy-sized trailer down. So I had some cannon fuse, and I, used, <laughs> I just lit it and ran around the corner and hit record. So am I hearing some sound effects, a little bit of yeah, fire sound, burning sound? There's also, um, there's firecrackers behind these windows on little sticks that I super glued in and says they would light. That do is they blow it's the windows It's looking great on video. It does look very realistic. So is that one of the firecrackers there? It was. <laughs> it looks so good, dude. <laughs> but Jones still needs one more thing to call the project done. A film of the moon rising through the window. While the artists wait for the moon, they head to the horseshoe pit. There's a um, like rhythm to it that I don't think either of us ever talked about over the course of the day. It's like, okay, you get up, you go to the bathroom, get coffee going, and then at some point we kind of part ways and I go over here and do this, and Pat's over here drawing or painting. Or Cocktail hour is usually pretty important. Horseshoe game's usually pretty important. <laughs> and they always cook a pot of carnitas over the fire. But tonight, that routine is interrupted by the moonrise. In all that emptiness, it's a major event, like fireworks going off, especially this one, huge and red from the smoke of distant wildfires. Keycut hurries out to his blank canvas. He wants to capture all that rusty color. That gold. It's kind of fun to start paintings here for me because deep down in whatever I finish with it, it's got some of the red desert DNA in it as a layer. But things aren't going as smoothly for Jones and his mobile home. The moonlight isn't bright enough to show up on his camera as it takes photos once a minute. Always there's an easier way to figure this out. But it's kind of a hard part about coming out here. You build this in the shop, then you bring it here. Yeah. <laughs> you think it'll work. Sometimes it does. And it does work. Okay. The next morning, Jones shows us the stop motion video on his laptop. He has months more editing of his film ahead, but he has his last piece, a big red moon rising through the window of an abandoned mobile home somewhere north of Wamsetter. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Let's stay with the idea that art can change how we see a place. Lucy Lepard writes about the role of art in society. She's at the University of Wyoming as an eminent artist in residence, and she stopped by our studios to talk with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. In her book, The Lure of the Local, Lucy Lepard says everybody should take responsibility for wherever they find themselves for as long as they live there. And she says that starts with simply looking around. Anything that affects you is the first thing, obviously. Oh, it's too far to the grocery store. The local store is too expensive. This is a food desert. Somebody's dropping beer bottles all over my lawn. If I have a lawn, do I have a lawn? Why do I have a lawn in an arid place? And so forth. I mean, it, it's kind of one thing leads to another. So, so you look around, questions begin to arise, and, and out of those questions, then action? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> that doesn't always happen. But uh, And action, of course, comes with a community of some kind. So other people's concerns get involved with yours and interconnect, and one thing leads to another. It's my methodology is one thing leads to another. <laughs> well, let me ask you about your time in Laramie this fall. 
you don't live here. It's an extended stay. Uh, I think your dog might think that you do live here now, uh, <laughs> not knowing what the future holds. <laughs> right. So how do you interact with a place that, that you're in temporarily? Walking. Walking around and getting a sense of it. I mean, after all, in eight weeks, I'm not going to get much of a sense of it. Sometimes I think I have a little more sense of it than some of my students, but a lot of them, are, almost all of them are from Wyoming. So they have a much broader sense. Of course, familiarity can be a double-edged sword, right? Mm. You, you don't see things anymore because you've already seen them. Right. Thanks to Phil Roberts in the history department, I, I got them to read Sam Western's book, uh, Pushed Off the Mountain, Sold Down the River, which is a wonderful short economic history of fairly recent Wyoming. And a lot of them were kind of blown away. Mm. And and so they're into myth now. I mean, the the whole everything's a myth, actually. So. <laughs> Now, you're here at UW uh, ostensibly talking about art. and uh, <laughs> Yeah, yes, there's that. <laughs> and, and people, you know, when they talk about you, they often focus on, on your role uh, in conceptual art and feminist art. Has environmental activism always been a concern for you? Well, since about 1970, when I think I'm 69, 70, when I first heard the word ecology, which I'd never heard before. Uh, it's been a concern, and I've always I've always liked being outdoors. So when art kind of came out to meet me, it was a nice nice moment. But I've have been involved in a million other things too, mm -hmm. and a lot of street activism and stuff, which is very different living in a rural situation and in a western state. You know, I forget wheat pasting. My partner and I wheat pasted some faces of Iraqi women and children on a canyon road, which is Santa Fe's main art drag or was. And uh, we put them all up and down at the beginning of the Iraq War, and they were gone the next day. By God, <laughs> you know. So, I, you know, I, I knew that it's not New York anymore. So you got to do something different. So if you go and plaster uh, photographs of Iraqis on buildings, and they get torn down, you, you raise the question: So what works? Yeah, well, that is that's the question. A, a lot of artists really feel like what they're doing in terms of public art is enough. <laughs> And it's also very hard to haul artists out of their studios. Mm. I, I've organized artists for years in New York, and it's like herding cats. So it's it's interesting to try to pique artists' imaginations enough to to see how they could get out and do something that's visual, that or that's interactive, or that's connective, or that's relational, or whatever. And that somehow pushes our our conceptions of where we live. Or yeah, how or we makes live. us look. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I don't think art. I always say. I don't think art can change the world alone, but with the right allies, we can really help people see things. I feel very strongly that all artists, no matter what kind of work they make, should spend a little bit of their life going out and seeing how they can be artists in a, a broader domain. Be part of the conversation. Yeah, even even just, just go out in the streets and do something and see what happens. Uh, even if they go back to the studio and never do it again, I mean, that's their choice. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying all artists should be activists, all artists should be community artists and so on. But I think just that a taste of what that's like is important to being an artist. So you don't think, well, I don't care what my audience is all about me and all about my individual expression. And, and the audience probably won't understand it because they're dumb and I'm wonderful. And I mean, there's, there's <laughs> a little too much of that in the art world. So if... Uh if every artist at least once in their career stepped outside the studio and did something that, that could be qualified as activism of some sort, what do you think would happen? <laughs> well, there'd be a lot more of it, and a lot more people would 
catch the bug of, oh, that's pretty interesting when you make something in the streets and people in the neighborhood come by and they talk to you and communicate. And I lived for several years with an artist named Charles Simmons who took raw clay out into the streets, made a little landscape in the holes and vacant lots, and then built tiny little, with tiny little bricks, tiny little sort of Pueblo-looking buildings, and uh, which he, he said these are dwellings for the little people. He was doing it in a Puerto Rican community in the Lower East Side in New York at first, and, and the people really identified with the little people because they knew they were the little people in this particular context. So do you think artists have a responsibility socially? I do, yeah. I mean, I think everybody has a responsibility. I mean, I don't think artists any more than school teachers or coal miners have more or less responsibility. We all live in this world, and, and uh, nobody gets off. No free lunches. Well, Lucy Lepard, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you, and I'm a great fan of Wyoming Public Radio. <laughs> That's author Lucy Lepard speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. In November, Lepard is hosting two public conversations at UW about land use in the West. Across the country, people have been ditching their cable boxes over the last couple of years. Many are choosing to rely mostly on on-demand streaming services like Hulu and Netflix instead. That's given the cable companies some jitters. But the rise of the cord cutter has been very good news for a different industry, the people who sell over-the-air TV antennas. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan has more. When 25-year-old Jordan Bishop moved into his apartment near the University of Wyoming in Laramie, the idea of signing up for cable never even crossed his mind. Way too expensive. Instead, he got an Apple TV so he can Netflix his favorite shows. 30 Rock, old 30 Rock episodes. Uh, Louie is always a great one. Rent and stream movies. Uh, They Came Together, Book of Eli. You get the picture. But today is Sunday, football day. So you look at a third down and six. The Broncos game is playing on network TV, and it looks great, crystal clear. For that, Bishop can thank a different product, his over-the-airwaves TV antenna. He bought it for 50 bucks, and that's all he paid, uh, plus the cost to mount the thing. It's up, taped up on my wall. <laughs> is that it? Yeah. Yeah, it just hooks right back into the TV. It's just like a little flat box that sits up. Okay, so they're not all the rabbit ears you might remember, but TV antennas are back. The number of homes in the U.S. that take network TV over the air and don't use cable or satellite has gone up by about 17% since 2010, according to Nielsen data. That's been a surprise to Jim Petty. He's part of a volunteer co-op that helps transmit Denver TV signals to the Laramie area. Petty says back in the mid-2000s, he was ready to shut his operation down. There was that whole air of inevitability out there. Hey, you know, it's all going to go to Wi-Fi or, you know, cable or satellite, and these things will be pointless, and let's just stop doing it right now. But then free over-the-air TV got a facelift to digital. ABC7 wants you ready for the digital evolution. Digital quality is far better. So starting February 17, 2009, all broadcast TV has to be digital by law. These days, almost every part of Wyoming can pick up at least a few network channels in digital quality. 
And as more and more viewers have realized that you can catch the game on broadcast TV for free and it looks just as good as cable, Petty's hearing from them. That, combined with the cord-cutting phenomenon, means big business for the TV antenna industry. Initially, my goal was to sell about 35 antennas a month. Richard Schneider runs a company called Antennas Direct, based in the St. Louis suburbs. I think last month we shipped about a little over 70,000 antennas. Schneider says Antennas Direct sales went from $13 million in 2013 to $20 million last year. The company's biggest problem now, he says, is reaching all the people who don't realize broadcast TV is still around. Right now, we're only selling to the minority that knows that over the air even exists. People we talk to aren't even aware that you can get digital TV for free. And those people may be more likely to download a new app on their smart TV than go out and buy an antenna. Michael Goodman is with Strategy Analytics, a tech research firm. I think the biggest challenge is broadcast networks wanting to go to consumers direct. Just like many other media companies, broadcast networks are getting into the streaming game. And they have an incentive to lure you back to cable. Goodman says that's because broadcast networks make a lot of money from carriage fees. The buck fifty or so they get from each cable subscriber who has the network as part of a package. Broadcast networks don't get carriage fees if you watch them with an antenna. We're in a transition period right now where people are looking for more and more options to cut the cord. But I think all of those networks are going to look to shift those costs onto the consumer in a different way. So it's not clear where the TV antenna industry is headed next. But right now, it's hot, though you still might need to buy your own tape. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. When we come back, we'll join a truancy officer on the Wind River Reservation. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. World War II ended 70 years ago. And as more time passes, there are fewer and fewer people left who remember the era firsthand. Sam Mihara is a survivor of the Heart Mountain Relocation Center, a Japanese internment camp located between Cody and Powell. He sat down with Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard to talk about why remembering the past is essential to our future as citizens. He was in the camp from 1942 to 1945. The government let us out for visits to Cody and Powell, uh, but a few families at a time, they said, you know, for this one day, you can go and do your shopping. And uh, I remember going into uh, Cody and walking down uh, Sheridan Avenue with my parents and uh, almost every store, many stores, not everyone, but many stores had these signs, no Japs, J-A-P-S, were allowed. And and that's been an indelible mark in, in my memory. I'll never forget that. Uh, and that was my first exposure to, uh, uh, on a personal basis, of a, a serious racial discrimination. And, and uh, my reaction was, well, I don't want to come back anyway. And so um, I stayed away from Wyoming for some 40 years. And I think that was a mistake. What made you come back? The reason I came back is I had heard there was, there was an activity 
uh, at Har Mountain to try to restore the site. It was a very, very important part of American history. And so uh, I was curious. I wondered, gee, what are they going to do to try to restore the site? And so uh, there was an opportunity to come through northern Wyoming, and uh, I rented a car and went out to the camp. I was greeted by one of the ladies, who, a local uh, Powell lady named LaDonna Zoll, who uh, uh, met me at the campsite uh, on that Road 19 going into the camp and uh, wearing a big smile. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget that. And my first reaction was, gosh, a Wyoming... A uh, person who smiles. I've never seen that before. <laughs> and so uh, she introduced herself as LaDonna Zoll, and, and she, uh, she's been working uh, tirelessly on a campaign to try to restore the camp. And, uh, and she greets people, and she's uh, developed a uh, skill for uh, uh, retaining the artifacts from the camp and, and uh, try to develop the museum. Uh, with the real uh, items that were uh, used in the camp. So so my perspective of the people of Wyoming changed uh, through LaDonna. And, and ever since, that was about maybe uh, five, six years ago, uh, I've been back frequently. I come back maybe about every other month now and uh, try to talk to people and, and meet more people. How did it feel to be in that place again? Well, lots of memories. Uh, they just brought in a barrack they found in Shell, Wyoming, about 80 miles from the campsite, and it, it was near perfect. And um, so when I walked into that barrack for the first time, uh, immediate reaction was, gosh, I lived in one of these in a room, 20 feet by 20 feet, the whole family. And, and, and there's nothing like the feeling of seeing and, and being inside uh, of a facility that uh, you were kept uh, as a as a prisoner. Have you been able to to forgive to to come to peace with with what happened? Yeah, the issue having to do with um, am I am I comfortable with uh, what's happened in the aftermath of all of that? And and I don't think I will ever be you know hundred percent satisfied. Uh, we did receive an apology from the government, a letter signed by uh, the first uh, President George Bush. Uh, the the bill that was signed by President Ronald Reagan, all stating clearly uh, that uh, an apology uh, is made. Uh, that all helps. You know, in my lifetime, um, that's probably all I should expect as far as what happened during the camp. How do you think this experience affected you as an adult? Probably the, the most important uh, that I realized that here's an experience that there were some lessons learned, very, very important lessons learned. All of us who were American citizens had our fundamental civil rights uh, taken away from us when, when the government removes us from our homes uh, without justice, without due process, without going to a court and de determining whether or not we were uh, guilty. And, and that principle, I, I learned, um, is very important. And so what I like to do is to pass on that word to many, many other people, as many people as I can get to, um, and I've reached uh, over 25,000 people in the last several years uh, with a message on uh, here's what happened uh, during those years, uh, 42 to 45. And, um, 
and the lesson learned is that it should not happen to anyone. Samihara is a survivor of the Heart Mountain Japanese internment camp. Sam, thank you so much for being with us today. Most people on the Wind River Reservation have seen Craig Ferris on the sidelines of the basketball court at Wyoming Indian High School. As head coach, he's led the Chiefs to four state championships. But most days, Ferris can be found driving around and knocking on doors, putting the full-court press on a major problem for reservation schools, attendance. Ferris works for Wyoming Indian Elementary. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Trank spent a day with him on the job, and has this report. Craig Ferris begins his morning behind the wheel of a black Suburban, armed with a thick stack of envelopes. But before he delivers those, he's got to make a quick stop. I usually come have to come get these guys at least once a week, so. Ferris is what's called a homeschool coordinator, a job that seems to be equal parts mailman, social worker, and taxi driver. It's kind of like the truant officer. My job is to make sure the kids who aren't coming to school find out why and what we need to do to get them to school. Good morning, Talissa. Third grader Talissa Kadat missed the school bus this morning. My dad forgot that I woke me up, so he called this guy. Ferris's school district had the second lowest attendance rate in the state last year. At Wyoming Indian Elementary, the number of students who are chronically absent or missing more than 10% of school days has been double the state average. What's one of the top things that really plague a kid's development in school? Um, if they're not in school, they're, they're not learning. All right, have a good day. To fix the problem, Ferris's main job is what's inside those envelopes. Notices for parents whose children have missed too many school days. When kids have 5, 10, or 15 unexcused absences, he shows up to their door with a letter. A lot of parents know they're not sending their kids to school. They know I am visiting, so they're, they're not going to answer the door. <laughs> a copy of each of these letters is also sent to the tribal prosecutor's office. Parents who can't get their kids to school can be charged with educational neglect and face probation and fines. So Ferris, who stands six foot six, is no stranger to rustling blinds and sideways stairs. But he understands what parents are going through. A majority of our parents are trying. They are doing what it takes to get their kids to school. You know, even if they don't have a lot, they're doing it. And some parents are even happy to see him, like Rikina Armour. If he knocks on the door, is it a good thing or a bad thing? A good thing. He is the coach. Don't be shy. The best coach we have. <laughs> we need to get me some dog biscuits or something. Yeah. Ferris has done this job for about six years, but he's been coaching basketball twice as long. Everybody knows I coach the high school teams so when I deliver letters. They're always asking me about the boys and the team and how we're going to do this year. And I, I think that kind of helps me out because uh, most people know who I am. After a few more deliveries, Ferris is called back to the school to take a sick student home. In the nurse's office, we bump into Ferris's mom, Donna Highwalker. And what are you doing? 
Following my son around? Following him around. Yeah, yeah. What should I know about Craig? <laughs> I don't want to say. Hi <laughs> Walker works at the school as a literacy interventionist. In fact, most of the family works here, she tells me. Yeah, we end up getting all hired. Well, I'm the one that first started. I started, I've been here about, this is my 29th year. I got hired, my husband got hired, and then I think you? Ferris was born and raised here. He went to elementary school here, played high school basketball here. He left to play college ball, but came back. He says this is exactly where he wants to be. I really don't see myself doing anything else. <laughs> Ferris is like a liaison between the school and students' homes. Now he's on the hunt for some kids who haven't been at school all week. He's got a few different addresses for them. Nobody answers the door at the first two. He learns the kids are in Casper, visiting a family member in the hospital. Family illness is a big reason many of his kids miss school. The reservation is home to many large extended families, and Ferris says they're big on coming together during trying times. Another cause for absence, he says, is the fact that the reservation is more than 3,000 square miles. It's so vast our, where, where our kids are coming from. And, you know, If they're not catching the bus, it's pretty hard for them to find a ride to school, especially with the, the you know, socioeconomic aspect of it. And Ferris says some students living in tough conditions have bigger worries than getting to school on time. I've been to houses where nobody should be living there type of thing, and bad things are happening in, in the house. And I've seen a lot, um, dealt with a lot, um, reported a few things. But mostly what he sees when he knocks on doors all over the reservation are parents who want the best for their kids. You really see kind of where people, parents, and families are struggling and, you know, it might not look like they're trying, but they are. They're doing what they can. You know, what's that saying? Doing what, what they can with what they have. So, it, you know, it, it's a tough life out here. After a day out in the field, Ferris parks his SUV and pours over attendance data in his office. He stacks another thick pile of envelopes and maps out his route for tomorrow. For Wyoming Public Radio... I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the show or want to hear individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also find our podcast on that website or on iTunes, and we'd appreciate it if you'd rate the show and leave comments. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to submit ideas for future shows. Our next program will be November 6th. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.